0: Hope is one of those essential things in life, uh, isn't it? It's one of those essential things in life that we often take for granted until it's missing in one form or another. Sometimes we can refer to hope as being lost, don't we? We say, you know, all hope is lost, or we feel somehow that hope is lost. And when we come to that place, we'll often do almost anything to find it again. But here's the interesting thing about something that's lost. It's only lost... Once you realize it's lost, right? I mean, something can be gone for a long time, and until you actually realize it's lost, you actually don't know that. And um, Lisa and I discovered that in Disney World when we lost our five-year-old daughter. And we were actually really enjoying Disney World and having a great time until that moment that we looked at each other and we kind of checked in and realized that the other didn't have it that we assumed, and we realized our kid was lost. She was found. But with hope, I wonder too if it's not so much lost as it erodes over time. And so then we come to a place where we realize that something's missing, but we don't realize it so suddenly because it's kind of a slow kind of erosion that happens, and it's sometimes hard to recognize when it's not there because it happens so slowly. In Proverbs 13, verse 12, it says, Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. You know, disappointment in life and when we go through seasons of doubt or through experiences of pain or whatever it is that we are walking through individually or as a family, we go through these times where we find that there is erosion happening in our hope and it's deferred, or at least it's gone for a time. And then suddenly we realize what has happened slowly, and then we feel maybe hopeless, and our heart becomes sick. I know that for many people, and even many people here today, who struggle with mental illness, this is an intense and constant battle in terms of a search for hope and a focal point of basically every day of life. And for others, it's maybe not the intensity of of mental illness, but it's just the realities and the disappointments of life and the hard things that we go through and the challenges that we face. And maybe it's in our relationships with people that we love. Maybe it's in our finances and the future of that. Or maybe it's in our health. Uh, Maybe it's in our work relationships or work situations, whatever that looks like. But we all need hope. And so we want to begin this new year on a series In Nehemiah that focuses and looks at Nehemiah from the perspective and through the lens of hope which I think it does and here's the really good news that I want us to see today hope and rubble can coexist and God can bring new things out of broken people God can bring new things and new hope out of broken circumstances So as we step into Nehemiah, I don't want to make assumptions of our knowledge and understanding of this book and understanding all the background, so I want to spend some time this morning giving us some context of Nehemiah, and we'll keep referring back to it in the weeks ahead, but I I wanted to begin with looking back and understanding more of the context of this wonderful book. And I know for people who have been in the church for many years, uh, for many people it becomes a favorite book in one way or another. It has variety of different applications and ways that it inspires us. But I want to, first of all, just park Ezra and Nehemiah together, and encourage you to turn there in your Bibles, and I'll I'll make reference to different places there in in just a minute. It's about, it's prior to the Psalms. Uh, If uh, you've got a physical Bible here, it's a little bit on the front side of half, and uh, you can find it on your digital device uh, in other ways. But Ezra and Nehemiah, in many ways, uh, are, well, they were originally one book, actually. And they are like different chapters of the same story. And they tell really important history of the people of God in the fifth century BC. And they tell the story of the Judeans, the people of Judah, returning from exile to Jerusalem. And if you want to remember or think about Ezra and Nehemiah, not Nehemiah in its simplest forms, you think of it this way Ezra is the story of the people returning from exile and the story of the rebuilding of the temple. And Nehemiah is the story of the people returning from exile to Jerusalem and rebuilding of the wall. Now that's in its simplest form, but these books are also about far more than that. They are about God's faithfulness, and they are about spiritual renewal in the people of God. So what's the backstory? Who are these Judeans? What is exile? How does this relate to us today? And these are good questions that... I hope and trust will become clear to us today and through the weeks ahead. So in 586 B.C., Jerusalem was destroyed. And when we say destroyed, it means that the temple was destroyed, the walls around the city were destroyed, the homes in the city were destroyed, anything wooden was burned, and anything of rocks was pushed over into rubble. People were killed. People were taken into captivity by the Babylonians. And so these Hebrew people, or these Jews, or the people of God, the people of Israel, these similar names that we use for God's chosen people that were established through Abraham and rescued out of slavery by Moses were now a people going into exile. Because, you see, they were covenant people. They were covenant people with the covenant of God And this covenant was a covenant of God's presence and blessing that was conditional upon their obedience. And they rebelled. They forgot the purpose of being chosen. They forgot the reason why God had set them apart. They forgot their calling and their identity of bringing the blessing of God to the nations of the earth. So God sent prophets to call them back to this covenant. God sent prophets to kind of remind them of who they were and what they were called to do. And that's what we see so much in the Old Testament prophets of calling these people back to this relationship and this covenant with God. And so what happened? Well, glad you asked. First and Second Kings and First and 2nd Chronicles, if you look at those books, and you can even kind of flip through them here this morning, but as you look at those books, they, they give a record of the kings of Israel and Judah, actually, The people who led this nation, which at one time was one nation, but they were a kingdom because they had a king. And they had asked that of God, and God gave them a king, and so they were a kingdom people. But they were actually a divided kingdom. And they were a kingdom of the north, where the capital was Samaria, and they were the kingdom of the south, Judah, where the capital was Jerusalem. And we won't go into much of that story. That's a story for another time, but you see it in 1st and 2nd Kings in 1 and 1st and 2nd Chronicles unpacked there for you. But I want to look at 2nd Chronicles for a minute because it's really helpful for us to understand the context of Nehemiah. And it's the book immediately before Ezra and Nehemiah. And in 2nd Chronicles, you see in the first chapters an introduction to Solomon. King Solomon, who was the son of David, who was this great warrior poet set apart by God and who was the king of Israel who was the person who every other king of Israel was kind of set up against. And so even in the record in First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, we see that these kings were measured and weighed mostly against David because David was held up as this person who had a relationship with God and a heart that was soft for God and faithful to God, even though he was a broken sinner. But he was repentant and redeemed by God. And so we see in these uh, chapters in Chronicles, some of the story of these kings. And it starts with Solomon, the son of David, who was wise and he was a great king. And he built in this city of David in Jerusalem the temple for the Lord. And it was a magnificent temple. And you can find many records of that in Scripture and in the different books of the Bible that speak to this temple. It was a place of worship that symbolized so much for the people of God. And so in 2 Chronicles, we have about 400 years of history. And again, it records the faithfulness of each of the kings, and most of them do not do well in terms of following God and obeying his commands. And then we read this summary at the end of 2 Chronicles that gives us this backstory to Nehemiah. And I want to just read through some of this text in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, starting in verse 11. And so we're introduced to Zedekiah. It says, Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 11 years, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, his God, and he refused to humble himself when the prophet Jeremiah spoke to him directly from the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, even though he had taken an oath of loyalty in God's name. Zedekiah was a hard and stubborn man, refusing to turn to the Lord, the God of Israel. Likewise, all the leaders of the priests... And the people became more and more unfaithful, and they followed all the pagan practices of the surrounding nations, desecrating the temple of the Lord that had been consecrated in Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their ancestors, repeatedly sent his prophets to warn them, for he had compassion on his people and his temple. But the people mocked these messengers of God and despised their words. They scoffed at the prophets until the Lord's anger could no longer be restrained and nothing could be done. And so the Lord brought the king of Babylon against them. The Babylonians killed Judah's young men, even chasing after them into the temple. They had no pity on the people, killing both young men and young women, the old and the infirm. God handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar. The king took home to Babylon all the articles, large and small, used in the temple of God and the treasures from both the Lord's temple and from the palace of the king and his officials. And then his army burned the temple of God, tore down the walls of Jerusalem, burned all the palaces, and completely destroyed everything of value. The few who survived were taken as exiles to Babylon, and they became servants to the king and his sons until the king of Persia came to power. So the message of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah was fulfilled, and the land finally enjoyed its Sabbath rest, lying desolate until the 70 years were fulfilled, just as the prophet had said. Now let me stop there for a minute. We're going to come back and we're going to read the last two verses in this chapter. But before I go on, I want to just dwell on that last line there where it says the land had finally been restored or enjoyed its Sabbath rest, lying desolate until the 70 years were fulfilled, just like Jeremiah said. Well, many of us know that one passage that is often quoted and probably misquoted as we remember Jeremiah 29, 11, where you see it oftentimes on graduation cards and different uh, Places where people are encouraging others about the plans that God has for you. But now let's read that well-known passage in its context. And here's the context. Flip over to Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10, which is what the passage we just read was speaking about. Jeremiah is this prophet who is speaking to the kings and saying, come back to this covenant of God. And here's what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 29, verse 10. This is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years, but then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised, and I will bring you home again. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, they are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. In those days when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. I will be found by you, says the Lord, I will end your captivity and restore your fortunes. I will gather you out of the nations where I sent you and bring you home again your own land the context of that is exile the context of this promise of prosperity and that i will help you and that god has a plan for you is in the midst of a whole bunch of pain and so now if you look back to the end of chronicles where we just were we understand that verse that we just read about the 70 years and then it goes on in verse 22 of Second Chronicles 36, and it jumps ahead many, many years. And it jumps ahead to King Cyrus of Persia. And it says that in the first year of his reign, the Lord fulfilled the prophecy he had given through Jeremiah, and he stirred the heart of Cyrus to put this proclamation in writing and send it throughout his kingdom. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has appointed me to build him a temple at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Any of you who are the Lord's people may go there for this task. And may the Lord your God be with you. I find it so fascinating how God uses these nations of the earth and these different people for his greater purposes. And there's all kinds of questions that come up when you read those texts about what the Babylonians did to the people of God. It's like, why? Like all this devastation, how does this make any sense? But God, in his sovereignty, uses these different things in the life of his people to form them into his image and to call them back to himself. And here he uses this king of Persia now to also fulfill, he even says how he's going to build a temple. Well, he doesn't build the temple, but he allows the people to return and to build this temple back in Jerusalem. And so, again, God uses this foreign power, this Cyrus of Persia, for his purposes allow people to return, and then we see that story recorded in the book of Ezra to rebuild the temple, and then years later for Nehemiah to go back and rebuild the wall. So it's about 140 years later, the return of exile happened in a number of waves, and so some of the first people were able to go back after those 70 years, and then it was like another 70 years later that Nehemiah goes back to rebuild the wall. Sometimes we read these passages and we forget the long expanse of time that is happening in between here. And sometimes we're even going through things in our own lives and it just feels so intense and so uh, current right now. And it is. And we forget how God has a view of eternity that is so much longer than that immediate moment that we're in right now. And yet that immediate moment that we're in right now has something bigger for God's purposes. And so here is the backdrop of Nehemiah. As we come to Nehemiah chapter 1, I mean, that was a few hundred years of history. But now let's turn to Nehemiah chapter 1, understanding a little bit more of this context and what we're reading here in this first chapter. And I want to, again, just read this first chapter for us today. It says, These are the memoirs of Nehemiah, son of Hekaliah. In late autumn, in the month of Kislev, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes' reign, I was at the fortress of Susa. Hananiah, one of my brothers, came to visit with me with some other men who had just arrived from Judah, from Jerusalem, where the exiles had returned. I asked them about the Jews who had returned there from captivity and about how things were going in Jerusalem. And they said to me, things are not going well for those who return to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down and the gates have been destroyed by fire. And when I had heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned fasted and prayed to the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of unfailing love with those who love him and obey his commands, listen to my prayer. Look down and see me praying night and day for your people Israel. I confess that we have sinned against you. Yes, even my own family and I have sinned. We have sinned terribly by not obeying the commands, decrees, and regulations that you gave us through your servant Moses. Please remember what you told your servant Moses. If You are unfaithful to me, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands and live by them, then even if you are exiled to the ends of the earth, I will bring you back to the place I have chosen for my name to be honored. There's that conditional covenant. Then verse 10, The people you rescued by your great power and strong hand are your servants. O Lord, please hear my prayer. Listen to the prayers of those of us who delight in honoring you. Please grant me success today by making the king favorable to me. Put it into his heart to be kind to me. In those days, I was the king's cupbearer. So here's the beginning of Nehemiah where he sees that everything points to despair. The people have been able to return. They've been returning for many years. But so many had been killed and so many were gone. The temple at the time of Nehemiah had actually been rebuilt, but it wasn't in its original grandeur. It was nothing like the previous one that Solomon had built. The gates were still burned and charred. The wall was still in rubble. There was no king to lead them. Foreigners had taken over their homes, and they wondered who they were. They wondered about their identity. Are we still the chosen people of God? Do we still have an identity as God's people? Where is God in the midst of all this? So here's Nehemiah, the cupbearer to the king. I think it's a peculiar job. I don't think there's any real equivalent job in today's world of a cupbearer. I don't know what it would be. But here is Nehemiah. He's the cupbearer to the king, Nebuchadnezzar, who is a foreign king who is part of their oppressors, but he has found favor with this king. And a cupbearer would be somebody who was actually quite high ranking, would be somebody who had the trust of the king, in many, many ways, because he protected the king. Not only did the cupbearer choose and select the wine each day, but he also sampled it, not just to see how good it was, but to sample it to see that it didn't have poison in it. So the cupbearer, every day, put his life on the line for the king, and the king knew that. And so the cupbearer would typically be somebody who was brought into the king's confidence, who had influence, who was also called and mandated to bring joy and entertainment to the king. And yet here Nehemiah seems to have been out of the loop about what was going on in Jerusalem with his people. He was one of these Jews. He was one of these Israelites. And yet he, he really had no understanding of what had been going on all these years as people had been returning because it, it seems to all catch him by surprise as he asks the question of what's going on. And he hears this devastating news about the city, the people, the wall, and it seems to devastate him. You know, the wall around Jerusalem, just like any city in those days, was significant for many reasons. It didn't just keep unwanted people out, but it also set boundaries of the city, protected the city, and therefore gave them an identity as a people. And it's been said oftentimes that the first order of business for a leader is to face and state reality. And I think that there's truth in that, and Nehemiah is now a new emerging leader. He does that, and we'll see that next week and the weeks that follow. But I also think that a first-order piece of business for a leader is also to feel and experience the anguish and brokenness of their people. Anguish is this severe mental or physical pain or suffering. It's when we're extremely distressed about something, when it gets into our core and it actually is tearing us apart. That we feel it deeply within our bones. And when it says here in this text, when Nehemiah heard this news, he sat down and wept for days. He mourned, he fasted, he prayed to the God of heaven. And this prayer is, is quite remarkable. Nehemiah's prayer is one that begins with this, it starts with this anguish. It comes out of his anguish for his people and the brokenness of his people. And it begins in worship. As we see in verse 5, as he declares the Lord, the God of heaven, you are the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant. And then it goes into confession. And he confesses on behalf of his people. Because these were covenant people. They didn't think individualistically like we do so often. They thought only as collective covenant people. And so he identified with their sin. And he saw that he too was part of that. Part of that uh, distraction. Part of that not following God into his covenant. And so he identifies and he repents on behalf of his people, and he owns his own stuff. And then he acknowledges that covenant, and then he asks God for mercy. And he says, God, will you hear my prayer? Because Nehemiah is stirred within to act. So two words that for me come to mind as I look at these first chapters of Nehemiah are the words of anguish and action. Nehemiah is this remarkable leader who, first of all, just feels the anguish of his people. He feels the hurt and the brokenness of his people. He recognizes the brokenness in his own life, even though he had been living such an easy life at that time. But we also see in the weeks ahead that Nehemiah was a man of action, that he didn't let his anguish just emotional, immobilize him, but that he actually allowed it to lead him to action and to respond. As he prays to God and he says, God, would you help me and have mercy on me? Because you're calling me to do something. Help me to do something. So here's this man, Nehemiah, with his office body and his soft hands. He's going to go build a wall and lead a construction crew. Are you kidding? So he is ready to be mobilized. But he begins with this prayer. And he turns his anguish into action. You know, these were old covenant people. As I said, a covenant that was conditional upon their obedience. And for me, what I find so encouraging is that we are new covenant people. Jesus says he established a new covenant. It is different than this old covenant for the people of Israel. This new covenant is a covenant of grace and mercy and love. And it's a covenant that God pours out on us unconditionally. And as I was reading again this text and thinking about Nehemiah's anguish, it reminded me of Luke 22 where Jesus too prays in anguish for the brokenness of his people and also what was in front of him. If you look at Luke 22 verse 41 and following, it says this, as he's in the garden of Gethsemane, as he's preparing to walk to the cross, and he's praying prior to this event, And it says that Jesus withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, and he knelt down and prayed. And he says, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling on the ground. And here we have Jesus with this anguish for the sins of all people and the brokenness and the rubble of people's lives. And also anguish for the actions, the reality of the actions that were in front of him. The road that lay before him that he knew he would walk. And yet he walked resolutely to the cross for us, for our brokenness. This is the new covenant. This is what is so remarkable. This is why we can have hope. Because this Jesus went to the cross on our behalf, died for our sins, that we might have hope, that we might have new life. It's a covenant of hope, a covenant of grace, and a covenant of life, even amongst the rubble. In Hebrews 6, another sample of this, it talks about this hope that lies before us. For, so God has given both his promise and his oath. These two things are unchangeable because it is impossible for God to lie. And therefore we who have fled to him for refuge can have great confidence as we hold on to the hope that lies before us. And this hope is a strong and trustworthy anchor for our souls. It leads us through the curtain into God's inner sanctuary. So my question for you today and my question for each of us today is, where's the rubble in your life? What is it that you pray in anguish about? Where is it that you need hope again? I think for you know, sometimes the rubbish in our life, the rubble in our life is, is really apparent and it's really evident. It's evident to those around us, it's evident to us, it just seems to be so out there. Or maybe it's more subtle, maybe it's rubble that others don't see but you know it's there because you walk in it every day. And I guess my encouragement to you and to each one of us is that it starts by facing reality and recognizing a rubble. Then it, it, it's about feeling the anguish for what it is. And I really believe that we all have brokenness in our lives. Every one of us. We have brokenness of one kind or another. And it eventually just starts to erode our hope. Even in my own family, we we have it. For Lisa and I and our, our girls as well. Even in this past year, we've been reflecting on this some. Recognizing that there are some cracks. Some erosion of hope in relationships that need to be tended to. And so we are. And you do with prayer, with action, with initiative, with repentance. And you know, oftentimes when we go through those things, and you go through those things, we can't do it alone. We need to bring others in and alongside us. And again, it's this subtle erosion that when you begin to realize that maybe hope is not lost, but it's blurry at least, and it's fading. It's deferred. It needs to be found again, restored and made new. But here's the encouragement that I want to have for each one of us is that Jesus meets us right there. Jesus meets us right there in the midst of our rubble. In the midst of the mess, redeeming, restoring, and renewing us. And I, as I observe people's lives, as I observe my own life, and as I read Scripture, I see and I know <laughs> that hope and rubble can coexist. And they so often do. But Jesus is at work in the middle of that, making things new. He can bring dead things to life. I want to invite the worship team up. And I want to just leave, leave us with these two scripture verses to reflect on. A little bit later in the service, we're going to have a chance to just join in with Nehemiah's prayer and to join in to pray in different ways. But I want you to think about these two scripture verses that, that speak to this hope that we have in Jesus that is so powerful and so profound this new covenant hope that we have in the midst of whatever rubble we find ourselves in because of what Jesus did on the cross. First Peter 1.3, Peter says this, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And the second one is found in Romans 15.13. And I want to read the passage that's actually just the verse before that, and you don't have it on the screen. But in Romans uh, 15 verse 12 it says uh, Paul is saying this he's quoting Isaiah and another place in Isaiah it says the heir to David's throne will come and he will rule over the Gentiles and they will place their hope on him and he's speaking of Jesus that we will place our hope on him and then he says this I pray that God the source of hope will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him and then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit Amen.